0: for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning, you guys. What a great morning this has been. I mean, wow. Amen. It's awesome. Uh, So the teaching text for this morning I might get emotional too. I don't. Just, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Thanks, Ben. I told the staff this week, okay, we got the baptism, I'm going to preach shorter, and they were all like, pfft. <laughs> They're saying that because I don't know that I'm capable of it, but we'll see. All right, today we're looking at uh, number six in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, which is goodness. With each of these, I kind of thought going into it, these are going to be like uh, thin content, There's going to be like, well, there's not a lot of meat on those bones. But this is just what's so great about scriptures. you begin to meditate and to dwell, and you see, wow, there's so much there. Kindness surprised me in studying that last week, this week uh, looking at goodness. Uh, Goodness, you may have noticed, uh, if you've been around church world for a while, goodness shows up a lot in worship songs. Uh, At communion, we're going to sing, you are good. Ben and I wrote a song called Good News, um, that your goodness is running after me, that one, good, good father, goodness shows up a lot. Uh, goodness shows up a lot in our language. How you doing? I'm good. You know, how was church? It was good. Uh, how, how was uh, you doing good? Uh, yeah, I'm good. We use it when we're frustrated. Good gracious. Good gravy. Good Lord. We use, we use good all over the place. But the really simple question that I want to explore today, you remember Jesus said to Pilate, what is truth? The question I want to explore today is what is Good. Or what is goodness? Very, very simple on the surface, but there's a lot going on here. So if I were to ask you, define what is good, you might say, well, it's not bad. <laughs> but if goodness is only defined as the absence or the opposite, or if badness is only the ab- absence or the opposite of good, we really haven't made any forward progress in something that we can hang our hat on. What is good? What is goodness? What I want to explore in the next couple of minutes today, what I want to do is make the case that knowing what is good requires knowing how things should be. To know what is good requires knowing how things should be. That for something to be good, it must be in alignment with its design, with its intent. And more than you perhaps realize in this moment, I'm making a huge ideological assumption or assertion, even in saying that. That to know if this something is good means for it to be in alignment with its design. But the foundation that we have to start with in understanding goodness is that goodness comes from God. We could adapt First John: goodness comes from God because God is good. Uh, this comes from uh, Scott McKnight's book, A Church Called Tav. Goodness, the Hebrew word there is Tav, is first like Boker Tav, you know, you know things like that, or mazel Tav. Uh, goodness or Tav is first and foremost about God. God is Tav. The psalmist declares that you are Tav and do only Tav. When God chose to reveal His glory to Moses, He hid Him in a crack in a crag on Mount Sinai and said, "I will make all my Tav pass before you." As God's Tav passes by, he announces his name, Yahweh. Thus God's Tav became inextricably linked to his name. That's how vital Tav is in the Bible. God is Tav and God does Tav, often referring to God's covenant-making and generous acts of salvation. Not a single one of the Tav or good promises the Lord had given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken came true. Not only is God good, but he pursues us with his goodness. Surely your tav and unfailing love will follow me all the days of my life. McKnight says, don't miss this. God relentlessly and tenaciously chases us with his tav, his goodness. Those who turn to him for refuge are invited to taste and see that the Lord is tav, Those who taste this tav, this goodness, can also say how tav it is to be near God. Goodness comes from God because God is good. We see that God also encoded goodness into the fabric of creation. You could turn to page one of your Bible and we see that what God made is good. Read the word good with me every time that it pops up here, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was? And he separated the light from the darkness. The land produced vegetation, skipping ahead. Plants bearing seed according to their kinds. Trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was? God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. good. Lots of good. God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The kids and I are, uh, the big kids and Emily and I are watching The Chosen, which is, which is really good. I'm generally not a huge fan of religious entertainment. <laughs> I hope that's okay to say. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, but, uh, but it's really good. And there's this scene in one of the first episodes where Jesus is staying up late at night as a carpenter making a lock and key, and he finishes it, and he goes, it is good. I thought, That's great. Uh, in the biblical imagination, when God says that each of these things are good, uh, each of these things are good because they are as designed, they are as God intended. So goodness then assumes an intention. It assumes an end, a purpose. There's the, the word, a word that captures this really well is the word telos. A goodness assumes a telos, a point. It was created for a purpose. The same use of that word end is, it shows up in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end or purpose or telos is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The first whiff of of things being not good that we see in creation happened in Genesis chapter 3, when the man is alone, and God says, it is not good. It It is not in alignment with my ends for the man to be alone. Now, one of the central problems that we struggle with as a human race is we can't agree on what is good because we don't have a shared telos. We can't agree that there is a common purpose or point behind humanity or all the things that exist in our universe. Because we don't have a shared telos, we can't agree on what is good. We don't universally agree that there is a design, an end, a north star, a plumb line to show us the good. And if we don't agree on what the good is, from where are we deriving our sense of moral and ethical boundaries? have to follow me on this Uh, there's a 20th century sociologist named philip reef with two f's at the end who talked about three ways that societies have come at their moral compass and he uses it he talks about first second and third world to describe it and he's not talking about economics like an impoverished third world country he's using these this language of first second third world in a very different way In his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, he talks about how in a first world mentality, your morality comes from myth. So go back to like ancient Greece and the Spartan ruler is trying to justify the laws that he's enacting and he says, these laws were sanctioned by the oracle. So the oracle had some mystic ceremony whereby he said or she said, yes, these laws are good. And so the morality was not based on the authority of the ruler alone because they said, because I say so, this is the rule. The the morality was based on the myth behind the mysticism surrounding the oracle. This is a first world mythology and moralism. In a second world, uh, your morality is based on faith or it's based on revelation. So think about Judaism, think about Christianity, think about even about, uh, they would say, Islam. You have a sacred text or a holy book that, for a community, guides and governs their life together. Now, what you see in the first and second world is that morality comes from outside of the community. That there's some kind of supernatural element. There's some kind of revelation, divine intervention, whereby the people are basing their morality on that. So to be able to say what is good requires knowledge of the transcendent. Well, what happens when you go to a third world? Well, in a third world, morality is not based on something outside of oneself, but actually inside of oneself. The, 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 the ethical code comes not from without, but from within. The moral compass is not anchored in anything sacred or, or in revelation. Instead, morality and definitions of the good are justified on the basis of one's self. Um, Alistair McIntyre calls this emotivism. Emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments, and more specifically, all moral judgments, are nothing but expressions of preference, of attitude, or feeling. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, explains that in third world cultures where morality is based on me, the only moral criterion that can be applied to behavior is whether it conduces to the feeling of well-being in the individual concerned. In other words, if it feels right within me, it is therefore a moral right. Ethics then become a function of feelings. Okay, are you tracking with me so far? Nod your head if you think you generally get what I'm doing. Okay, <laughs> not hopeful with the number of head bobs. <laughs> well, here's what happens. You can have, in a single culture, people operating according to a first, second, or third world mentality. You can have in a single culture people who are saying, I believe this is right because it's in the Bible, and people people, often unconsciously or subconsciously saying, I believe it's right because it feels right to me. Now, no one would come out and say it as perhaps plainly or baldly as that, but we can have within the same culture these very different orientations for coming at what is right and good. In a given context, there can be people making moral judgments who appeal to the Bible or the Quran or some other sacred text, while there are also people making competing moral judgments who appeal only to their own preferences. And this is why it feels like we have a never-ending ideological civil war in the West. We have people operating from completely different paradigms for understanding what is the chief end of humankind. What is our telos? Coming at this whole thing from completely different directions so that it makes conversation very, very difficult. Carl Truman again. He says, when a representative of a second world, that's folks who would say, well, I believe this is right and good because the Bible says it is right and good. Uh, clashes with a representative of a third world who says like if it's good to me therefore it's good when those people clash there is no real argument or discourse taking place in short the basis on which these representatives make their judgments are entirely antithetical to each other if it feels like we're not hearing each other it may be because we're not we're not speaking the same language but there's another phenomenon that I want you to consider, and I'm calling it the fallacy of the third world Christian. Imagine, I mean, it's not hard to imagine, this is so many of us, imagine a person who's raised in a third world culture like ours, raised in a third world culture like ours where moral is, morality is, is functionally relative to each person. You're raised in a third world culture like ours, but you're also raised in a second world culture in the church. What I think we could all say, agree, happens is that one of those cultures is going to dominate and sometimes take over. And when the third culture takes over a second culture person or when a third culture takes over a second, per- a second culture institution, you get this kind of third world church or a third world church. Christian. And here's what's so deceptive and so sneaky and I need you to listen to me. In a third world church or in a third world Christian, you have personal moral preferences deceptively expressing themselves religiously. I'm going to say it again. In a third world church or a third world Christian you have personal moral preferences that are expressing themselves religiously but they're really no different from anyone else operating in the third world. They're just cloaked in religious garb. I would say there can be no faithful third world, third culture Christian. Because the way of Jesus begins with renouncing ourselves. The way of Jesus begins with denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. Why does it begin like this? Because as followers of Jesus, the the gospel has taught us that our hearts lead us astray. You know the quote from the office, Michael, your heart is a wonderful thing, but it makes some terrible decisions. We know that our hearts lead us astray, so the beginning of wisdom is in self-renunciation and fearing the Lord. The folks who are going through catechesis right now, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I could. I'm not going to, but I might. Uh, The folks who are going through catechesis right now are, are memorizing this question and answer. The question is, do you have the power to save yourself from sin and death? And the answer is so strong. It says, no, I do not have the power to save myself, for sin has corrupted my conscience, confused my mind, and captured my will. Only God can save me. I can't operate As a believer, still keeping my feet, my orientation anchored in the third world, that third culture. Christians believe, followers of Jesus believe, that knowledge of the good comes from knowing God and rediscovering and submitting to the telos of creation. That the way forward for us is not in inventing our own truth or or living like self-realizing No, like freedom and joy for us are in living into how God has designed us to be, to live according to the ends that God has for us. Knowledge of the good comes from God because God is good. Paul says that in a person who comes to trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God generates goodness within that person. Again, we go back to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit, the evidence of the working of the Spirit, it generates love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. When the Spirit of God is at work in the heart of a person, it generates these qualities of goodness. In other words, the Spirit labors to destroy the work of the devil in us and to bring us back to how we were meant to be. And when that happens in your life and when that happens in my life, the Lord says, it's good. When the hearts of parents are turned back to their children, God says, it's good when the hearts of children are turned back to their parents honor their parents God says it's good when we recognize that creation is not something just to be exploited but it's a gift from our creator to to us to steward so we submit ourselves to his lordship we care for this world that he's given us he says it is good When we honor the Lord with the first fruits of all that have been given to us, instead of selfishly or fearfully hoarding them, God says, It is good. When we finally stop berating and denying the good body that the Lord has given us and instead, with care, steward it, God says, It is good. When we finally tell the truth about our sin and come into the light, confessing these things to our Heavenly Father, God says it is good. When we're at the end of our rope and we renounce our self-confidence and we cry out to God for wisdom, God gives generously to all without finding fault. He says it is good. When we finally accept God's forgiveness and we walk in our redeemed identities, who we are in our baptism, beloved children of God, he says it is good. And when we extend the same forgiveness we've been given, when we forgive those who have wronged us, God says it is good. When we earnestly feast on the scriptures and cry out to God in prayer, striving to remain in him as he remains in us, God says it is good. And when we taste the goodness of the Lord and it overflows in our lives and worship, God says it is good. Scott McKnight said, A life of goodness develops in us over time. No one, at least no one we've ever met, wakes up on day one of the Christian life instantly, permanently, deeply loving. But over time, in accordance with God's design, his telos for us, and by the inner working of God's spirit in our lives, we develop a character of goodness, a character that God says, it is good. Goodness comes from God because God is good. To be good is not to invent our own morality or to chart our own path forward, but goodness is found in repentance and a return. Saying, Lord, what are the ends for which you have created us? Maybe as we get ready to receive communion, you feel the the Holy Spirit of God searching your own heart. And you might consider, where are you defying God's proper ends for you? Where are you resisting God's definition of goodness and you've been attempting to commandeer life for yourself? The invitation, as it is every week when we receive the bread and the wine, is to repent. To repent means that I have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself defining right and wrong for myself, Adam and Eve's original sin, to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ. We need to repent for the ways we've defied and we've resisted, and we've attempted to be that third culture, third world Christian, having our cake and eating it too, surrendering completely while also dominating and domineering our own lives. We need to repent. And we also, again, need to place our faith in Jesus, who some of us have, have tried everything to change but surrender to him. We hear the prophet Isaiah, in repentance and rest is your salvation. You say, Jesus, I want to rest in what you've done for me. I want to rest in the identity that you're trying to give me in my baptism, if only I'll accept it. We're invited to repent to turn and to see the Lord Jesus who, like the the loving father and the prodigal son, runs to meet all those who turn his way. Let's pray together. Jesus, you alone are good. You show us the goodness of your father. Lord, I pray that you will forgive us for ways in which we continue to fight you in defining what's right and good and true and beautiful. We perennially defy you. Sometimes we even want to change, but we find it just too difficult. I echo the words of of the catechism saying, I need God's help to make this change. I pray for us, Lord Jesus, for those of us who, in, and perhaps even in just pockets or quiet corners of our lives, have defied you and, and have attempted to live in that third world naming right and wrong for ourselves. I pray that you will reveal those corners of our hearts, that you'll shine your light on them, and that you'll help us to walk in the freedom of those who've discovered again the truth jesus we place our faith in you again today we pray that as we come to receive uh, the bread and the wine that you would fill us again with your spirit and that your spirit would generate a return and a repentant heart eager to accept and embrace all that you say is good may it be true of us that we delight in the law of your word that your word would be to us more precious than honey Jesus, I pray that you cause us to hunger and thirst for the truth, cause us to hunger and thirst in a quest to find that which is true and good and beautiful. Jesus, I want to pray for those today who just feel like are overwhelmed with life and who need the assurance of your love toward them. May they hear those words, your words of welcome and your words of love in their ears as you beckon them to draw near. Jesus, we love you and we trust in you. Join us now in this feast. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.